Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett. Hope that your week is off to a great start. This is our Monday broadcast. And uh, as you know, on every Monday, I always try to give you a recap as to what is happening at Hickory Ridge Community Church. Good things are happening. As a matter of fact, I want to invite you to a very special event this Saturday, October the 30th. It is the day before Halloween, Saturday, October 30th. From 4 o'clock to 7 o'clock, we are having our annual fall festival at Hickory Ridge Community Church. We are located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South. Please come on out and join us on Saturday. You'll have a great time. Bring the whole family, and I will make you feel right at home. I know that you're going to enjoy yourself, along with several other hundred of people that are going to be part of this annual event. So I hope to see you on Saturday, 4 o'clock to 7 o'clock for our fall festival. Well, today we want to talk about three paths to happiness. And uh, path number one would be, I've got to be happy. And the way that I can be happy is by being involved in what is called moral conformity. And basically, moral conformity is I'm going to redefine what sin is, and I'm going to just accept myself. And uh, the highest standard will be me because I'm constantly changing what is right and what is wrong. So moral conformity is basically redefining sin as a path to happiness. And we see this in our culture, don't we? Uh, We see things being constantly changed. What used to be wrong is now right. What used to be right is now wrong. And I don't have to give you a whole lot of illustrations about that because you can see it unfolding right before your very eyes. So that's one way to find happiness. The problem is, even though you may try to redefine sin, you can't eradicate the guilt that goes along with that sin. So I want to encourage you today, if you're trying to find happiness through moral conformity, that is accepting what culture accepts, you will not be happy. Well, some people say, well, if I can't do it through moral conformity, let me try to do it by self-discovery. And instead of redefining sin, let me go ahead and redefine myself. Uh, Learning to love myself. It says, listen, I am what I am, and uh, I'm going to follow a particular path. And so this is kind of a self-discovery path. Now, some people will put a a, a kind of a a merge between moral conformity and self-discovery, and it leaves them empty. As a matter of fact, even those who are non-believers are kind of seeing the emptiness that is involved in moral conformity and self-discovery. There was a poll that reveals our six-part new moral code. And uh, George Barna highlighted this in what's been called this new moral code. And here are the percentages of, of those who completely or somewhat agree with the following statement. Statement number one, the best way to find yourself is to look within yourself. Now, as you hear that statement, that sounds pretty good at first. As a matter of fact, 90% or 91% of Americans agreed with that statement. I got to find myself within me. Uh, The answer is found within me. As a matter of fact, 76% of practicing Christians even believe that, that the best way to find yourself is to look within. Now, I don't know about you, but I've discovered that whenever I look within, that's where I discover the problems of my life because I'm the biggest problem that I face. Well, here's a second statement and see if you completely or somewhat agree with this statement. People should not criticize someone else's lifestyle choices. Uh, 89% agreed with that. 76% of Christians even agreed with that. Now, that's saying that you cannot criticize anything that anybody else does. Now, that's crazy, right? Uh, That means we cannot make any kind of judgment call. So if your neighbor steals your car, you can't criticize that. Uh, If something goes wrong, you can't speak out against it. I want you to know that we're always making judgment calls. 
And some of that is bad, but most of it is good because that's what keeps us on the right track. So how do you feel about that statement? People should not criticize somebody else's lifestyle choices. Number three, to be fulfilled in life, you must pursue the things that you desire most. 86% agree with that. 72% of Christians agreed with that statement, that the way to find a life of fulfillment is pursue the things that I desire most. Now, the one major problem with this, if, if I desire things that are contrary to God's word, I'm not going to be fulfilled. I am going to fall short. Well, here's the fourth statement and see how you feel about this particular statement. The highest goal in life is to enjoy it as much as possible. The highest goal in life is enjoyed as much as possible. Well, 84% of Americans agreed with that statement. I was really surprised that 66% of Christians actually agreed with that statement as well. I want you to know the highest goal in life is not to enjoy it as much as possible. Happiness is not the chief end of man. As a matter of fact, Solomon, the wisest guy that ever lived, wrote a book called Ecclesiastes. And he tried three different things to find happiness. Number one, he tried to work real hard. He figured if I work real hard, that'll bring a sense of fulfillment and accomplishment. And uh, I don't know about you, but I'm a type A personality. And so I like to accomplish as much as possible. And it makes you feel really good when you accomplish a whole lot of things. But I want you to know, Solomon felt empty. Uh, He worked his fingers to the bone and he says, oh, this is vanity. He says, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. So work didn't work out so well for him. So he said, well, let me try something else. He says, let me try amassing a whole lot of wealth. Uh, As you know, people that have a whole lot of wealth tend to be in control of a whole lot of things. And he thought, well, maybe if I had a bunch of money, I could have more power and then I'd find happiness. So he tries going down this path of amassing a great amount of wealth. You know what he said about all the wealth that he had? He said that left him empty too. And he said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So work didn't work for him. Wealth didn't work for him. He said, well, let me try something else. And maybe you've tried these, uh, this path yourself. He said, well, let me try going down the path of consuming a lot of wine. Or we could say the path of an addict. And he said, I'm going to go down this path And maybe the best way to enjoy my life is just to be anesthetized to everything that's happening around me. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried this. I want you to know something. You go down that path, when you come off of that alcohol, you come off of that drug, your problems are still there. They didn't go away. As a matter of fact, they probably are magnified after you've come off that high, after you've come off of that alcohol. So he tried work, he tried women, he tried wine, and it all left him empty. Solomon spends a long time going through an entire book talking about the vanity of life. And he gets to the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes, and he says, I've discovered what the chief end of man is. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy his presence forever. You see, God designed us to glorify him. You know, this this weekend, I did a funeral, and there's a lady in our church, and she and her husband were married 70 years, or just short of 70 years. What a fascinating marriage they had. What an amazing life they had. I called her a walking encyclopedia. Uh, She knew the Word of God. I would start quoting a verse, and then she would quote and finish the rest of the verse. I asked her one day, I said, what do you do when you get anxious? She said, I get in the Word of God. I said, I do the same thing. And I started quoting Philippians chapter 4, where it says, don't be anxious about anything, 
And then she completed the sentence by saying, but in everything through prayer and supplication, let your request be made known unto God. She was an amazing lady. Can you imagine being married to the same man for almost 70 years? Uh, They had a lot of neat stories to tell. But I shared at her funeral, you know, we come to life with three primary questions. Question number one is, how in the world did I get here? (laughs) That's a pretty good question, isn't it? How did I get here? You know, I didn't just happen to get here. I got here by somebody choosing to have me. I got here with some kind of a purpose in my life. So how did I get here? Well, I tell people the Bible answers all three of these major questions that we have. How did I get here? God created us in his image. The Bible says in the image of God, God created us. Now that's some really good news today, isn't it? That God thought so much of us, he wanted us to be created like him. Now when God created all of the creation, he looked out and he says, this is good. When he came to creation of man, he says, this is very good. Now there's something different about how God created us versus how he created the rest of creation. When he created Adam, the Bible says that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul, a living being. So the soul is the real part of you. That's the part of you that's going to live on forever. God created us with a body, a soul, and a spirit. The spirit is your personality. The soul is the part of you that's going to live on forever. The body, when you die, is just a shell. It's the outward part of you uh, that will remain, that will eventually decompose and go back into dust. So we come into this world asking the question, how did I get here? You got here because God created you in his image. He has a purpose for your life, which answers the second question, what am I supposed to do while I'm here? You ever ask yourself that question? I mean, the, the 70 plus years that I may be here on this earth, what in the world am I supposed to do? Well, Ecclesiastes answers that question. Our purpose in life is to glorify God. You know how we most glorify God? By accepting salvation, by accepting that free gift that Christ has given to us. And by doing that, we begin to fulfill the purpose that God has for us. You know, God's purpose is bigger than just our salvation. You know, God has a purpose specifically for you. He created you with a unique gift, several unique gifts. You know, nobody sounds just like you. Nobody looks just like you. Nobody has the same fingerprints just like you. Nobody has the same DNA as you. Nobody has the exact same personality that you have. Nobody has the same talents and the gifts that you have. God created you with these gifts so that you can use them to carry the purpose out in life that he has for you. You can glorify God through the gifts that you have been given. So we've talked about how we got here. We talked about the purpose that God has for us. And I want you to know that if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that is the initial fulfillment of the purpose that God has for you. You know, you can receive that free gift anytime that you want. Uh, The Bible says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a fascinating verse, isn't it? Well, the third question that we ask ourselves is, what's going to happen to me when I die? You know, the Bible says, it's appointed unto man once to die. After this, the judgment. So God already knows when will be your last day here on this earth. We don't know the exact day, and uh, we don't know the exact hour. We don't know the surroundings of what's going to happen in our our latter part of our life or or when we're going to finish up the task that God has for us, but God knows exactly when that's going to happen. What happens to us when we die? If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that soul, that real part of you, goes up to heaven. Paul put it this way, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
I want you to know that when you die knowing Christ, you don't really die. Well, that old body of yours dies, but the soul, the real part of you, just really begins living. I think about all the blessings that God has given me and given you, those who know Christ. You know, three major things happen to you at the point of salvation. Number one is that you are justified. God looks at you and he says, you know what? You are my child. I have sent my one and only son to give you salvation. And if you accept that free gift of salvation, you are forgiven. Not only are you given everlasting life, but you're given the abundant life here on the earth. You know, I'd want to be a follower of Christ, even if heaven wasn't thrown in, just because of the fun time that you have by being a servant of the Lord. Now, when the Bible talks about the abundant life, it is not necessarily talking about wealth and riches. It's talking about a life that is lived to its fullest. It's talking about a life that completes the purpose that your life was designed to complete. That's what the abundant life is all about. I want you to know that when you're saved, you are just as if you have never sinned. God looks down at you and he looks through the blood of Jesus Christ and he declares you righteous. That's actually a legal term. God stamps on your life, you are just as if you've never sinned. Now, obviously we have sinned, but that declaration by God is made because of the blood of Jesus Christ. There's something else that happens to you when you get saved. Not only are you justified, but number two, you're sanctified. That's a real theological word. Don't you love that word, sanctification, right? It means set apart. It means holy. Sanctification is actually a progressive doctrine. In other words, when you accept Christ as your Savior, you are more like Christ the longer you walk with Him. So today, you ought to be more like Christ than you were yesterday. Now, the Christian life was never meant to be a series of ups and downs and all over the place. You know, so many people think that's what it's all about. Uh, And I think many times it's because we're double-minded. James talks about a double-minded man being unstable in all of his ways. James says that person doesn't receive anything from the Lord. Now listen, a Christian can be double-minded, but it doesn't have to be. The Christian life ought to be progressing to be more like Christ. It ought to be like stair steps. There may be some times where you plateau a little bit, but you ought to be stepping up, taking the next step, not taking a step and then falling down in the valley and going back up. We're to be more like Christ. So we've talked about justification. We've talked about sanctification. There's one other thing that happens to you as a follower of Christ. It was promised to you before the foundations of the world. That is, you will be glorified. Now, that's going to happen when you get to heaven. You're going to get a new body. That soul that goes up to heaven is going to have a new body attached to it. It's called a glorified body. It is a body that cannot sin, that will not sin, a body that is without sin, without sickness. It's going to be the perfect body. Now, some people debate as to when you get that glorified body. Uh, We could talk about that. I think that happens when we are raptured up as a church, right? Uh, You think about the rapture taking place. That is the next major event on God's calendar. And the word rapture is not actually found in Scripture, but the concept is. Found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It says, The dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we who are alive shall be caught up to be with Christ in the air. And then it says, So we shall be changed forevermore. That little phrase to me indicates that we're going to have a new body at that moment. Now, you don't have to necessarily agree with me on that, but I tell you, when we get to heaven, as we're being raptured up there, I'm going to tell you, see, I told you I was right. I got my glorified body, and so didn't you, and probably going to happen at the rapture of the church, God's next major event on his calendar. Well, those are the three things that happened to us at salvation. Let me go back to this whole concept of three paths 
to happiness. We talked about moral conformity that is redefining sin. That kind of leaves us empty because we still, even though we may try to redefine sin, we still battle issues of guilt. It it amazes me that we have redefined sin in our culture, but the level of depression, anxiety, guilt, and suicide are skyrocketing. Well, some people say, well, it's not through moral conformity, but it's through self-discovery. I must learn to realize that I'm different, and as I look inside of me, I can just learn to love myself. Now, I don't know anywhere in Scripture that it says you got to learn to love yourself. As a matter of fact, I discovered that the trouble that I have in my life is because I love myself too much, right? Nobody ever had to tell me to love myself. That one kind of came natural, right? Jesus says you to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Implied that you already know how to love yourself. Now start loving your neighbor like you love yourself. As we think about how we are changing in a culture, I want you to know that there's a statement that kind of blew me away from that survey that was done by Harvard in August of 2015. This last little statement. Let me see how you feel about this statement. Any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is acceptable. Now, the world would say, yeah, that's probably right. As a matter of fact, almost 70% agreed with that statement. What really surprised me is that 40% of Christians agreed with that statement. In other words, it's okay if I'm unfaithful to my spouse, just as long as we agree. Or the person that I'm having this relationship is in agreeance. Now, based on these results, a guy by the name of David Kinneman and Gabe Lyons made this conclusion. The morality of self-fulfillment is everywhere. It's like the air that we breathe. Much of the time, we don't even notice that we're constantly bombarded with messages that reinforce self-fulfillment. We see it in music. We see it in video games. We see it in apps. We see it in commercials, TV shows, and every kind of media. So we've talked about two ways to happiness, moral conformity, where I'm redefining sin, self-discovery, where I'm redefining myself, but there's a third way, and really the only way to happiness, and it's through surrender. Surrendering to Christ. So in today's broadcast and in tomorrow's broadcast, I'm going to give you part two of the story of an Old Testament set of brothers. And these Old Testament brothers, Cain and Abel, were the first brothers to experience being raised by sinful parents. Cain was the first murderer. He killed his brother Abel. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine how Adam and Eve felt? They have two boys, and they lose both of these boys. They lose Abel because he's killed by Cain, and then they kind of lose Cain because he becomes a wanderer. He becomes a fugitive because he killed his brother Abel. Well, let's read this story. It's found in Genesis chapter 4, 1 through 17, and then we'll, uh, we'll pick up some points about how we can have true happiness learning it from what not to do in order to have happiness. Genesis chapter 4, verse number 1 through 17. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept the flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought forth an offering, fat portions from the the same of the firstborn of his flock. Now the Lord looked at favor on Abel in his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he didn't look with favor. 
So Cain became very angry, and his face was downcast. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, you will be accepted. But if you do not do what is right, now I love this next little phrase, right? If you do what's right, it's going to be accepted. If you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It's getting ready to pounce on you, Cain. It's crouching at the door. It desires to have you. But God says, you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and he killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. And then we have this famous statement, or I should say this infamous statement. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse and you're driven from the ground, which opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, here comes the curse, right? The curse was not on Cain, but on the ground. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You're going to be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be like a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, and he lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain made love with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and they named it after his son, Enoch. Now, some fascinating things here uh, in this story. We discover that Cain kills his brother and becomes angry at God and jealous of his brother. So there are, there are six things that I'm going to share with you. Uh, I'm going to do half of it in this broadcast and the other half in the broadcast on tomorrow. Number one, I want to talk to you about the fact that works cannot save us. Cain thought if he worked hard and, and worked the garden and brought those first fruits to the Lord, that God would be well pleased with his offering. You know, the Bible talks about the insufficiency of our works. Our righteous works are like filthy rags in the eyes of God, says Isaiah. So we're going to talk about that. Number two, we're going to talk about how jealousy destroys us. You know, jealousy is a terrible thing. As a matter of fact, when you look at the story of the crucifixion of Christ, you know they put Christ on the cross because they were jealous of him and the miracles that he performed. So jealousy destroys us. Number three, we're going to talk about how our heart controls us. So many people don't realize the power of your heart. That's why in the book of Proverbs it says, above all else, guard your heart because out of it are the issues of life. If you speak something from your heart, from your mouth rather, and it's something derogatory, it's really coming out of your heart. We're going to talk about that. And then number four, we're going to talk about how pride condemns us, how pride causes our heart to get hard. Number five, we're going to talk about how God restores us, and then we'll wrap it up in the broadcast tomorrow on why our actions reveal our beliefs. So let's take these six subjects one at a time, looking at the story of Cain and Abel. Subject number one is why works can't save us. Good works cannot undo evil. So as we look at Cain's offering, it revealed his desire to be redeemed by the works of his hands. 
Let's go back to Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. It says that time passed, Cain brought an offering to God from the produce of his farm. Abel also brought an offering from the firstborn animals of his herd, choice cuts of meat. So good works cannot save us because these good works are like filthy rags. They are done to make us self-righteous. Our good works have absolutely no effect on our salvation. Now this kind of reminds me of a parable that Jesus gave of two sons in Matthew chapter 21. In Matthew 21, Jesus talks about a father and he's got two sons and he goes to the first son and says, hey, would you help me out in the vineyard today? And the son said, no way, I'm not gonna do that. But later he changed his mind, he repented. And then they had a second son and he asked him the same question. Hey, would you help me in the vineyard today? This son says, I sure will, but he never did. So Jesus asked the tax collectors, who is more pleasing in the eyes of the father? And he both says, well, the son that changed his mind. And then Jesus talks about the fact that it wasn't because he had good works, it wasn't the works of his hands, it was because of the change of his heart. You see, that's how we're born again. The heart is changed. Yes, the mouth speaks the praises of God, but our heart is changed. Well, thank you so much for listening to the broadcast today. So glad that you're joining us uh, for this broadcast. I look forward to talking to you tomorrow. Let me pray with you. Father, be with us as we're driving on the highway today. Keep us safe for your honor and for your glory. And we lift up the name of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3220 South Battlefield Boulevard, Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, you go to our website at www.hrcc7.org. No matter what you're going through, remember, in Jesus Christ, there is always hope for your heart.